You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. The question of education and politics is one that's often neglected, but it's of vital importance for a number of reasons. Just from the modern notion itself, we have Hobbes and Locke who ground rights in self-interest and self-development, but seem to have a more consumeristic notion of what is a good life, that it's acquisition of wealth. And the Pope has talked about consumerism as one of the great dangers of the West. I think education certainly has a vital role to play in elevating and giving direction to the citizens to know what the good life is. But let's go back again to our classical sources and then look through Maritain and Simone about how to use these sources to understand the challenge in liberal democracy today. A classic statement about legislation is to be found in Aquinas' Summa Prima Secunda, Question 92, Article 1, where he asked the question, it's on the effects of law, whether it is an effect of law to make men good. For his answer, Thomas goes right to Aristotle. The philosopher says the intention of every lawmaker is to make men good. And he goes on to say that the virtue of the lawmaker is to achieve the common good by fixing on the true good. He says, if the intention of the lawgiver is fixed on true good, which is the common good regulated according to divine justice, it follows that the effect of the law is to make men good. Now, I think we have to understand here what Aquinas has in mind of making men good does involve certain kinds of laws restraining appetite, although there will be a later question in which he says that human law cannot suppress every vice. But I think we miss the main thrust of Thomas and Aristotle on this view that the lawgiver ought to make men good if we only think about it in terms of morals laws or laws restricting evils such as pornography, which are an important part of the lawmaker's job. But I think this does conjure up a very narrow notion of what the classical account is, that making men good primarily has to do with providing education. It is a positive goal. It is a positive goal which requires a deliberate attention and care for education. 
So I think we should return to Aristotle and look at the last two books of the politics. It is interesting that these books of politics are devoted to education. If we look at the very beginning of book seven, by the way, these two are also said to be concerned with the best regime. So the best regime in some way will try to achieve the highest potentials for human beings. In chapter one of book seven, he says, before we can undertake properly the investigation of our next theme, the nature of the best regime, or this translation is ideal constitution, it's necessary to determine the nature of the most desirable way of life. As long as that is obscure, the nature of the best regime or ideal constitution must also remain obscure. For the best way of life will go together with the best constitution. So what Aristotle does here is revisit some of the questions of ethics, ranking the various kinds of goods to see that happiness has to do with goods of the soul. Happiness has to do with a proper ordering of the soul. That happiness has to do with achieving the full development of the human person. And that this requires an attention to leisure. He says work is for the sake of leisure. War is for the sake of peace. Useful goods and wealth are for the sake of intrinsic goods. So Aristotle does think the ultimate aim of a political society is to make possible the greatest human flourishing. And it's for that reason then in book eight, chapter one, he will even say that the prime duty of the lawgiver is to educate the young. Now this education of the young has really a twofold purpose. Certainly there is the highest flourishing that political society should aim at, but Aristotle, being the practical man that he is, also well understands that it's through education that the citizen is related to the regime. That is, there's an important element of civic education that should be the primary duty of the lawgiver in order to habituate the citizen to the type of regime in which he lives, to be able to appropriate and know the heritage and customs of their particular society. Now, this civic education, although it is appropriate to the particular regime and the particular city, I think does open out onto the greater education of liberal arts. One of my favorite passages concerning this is in chapter three of book eight. Now Aristotle says, of course, the great question for political society is what to do with leisure. And even though those who could participate in leisurely activities were very limited, Aristotle thought it was utmost importance to use leisure well, 
you see, and in a modern society where technology, economic conditions, and political conditions have freed so many people. Part of the great crisis in politics is the crisis of liberal education, that people don't know what to do with their leisure. That leisure is restricted merely to amusement or to play, and not the higher play of the mind and the cultivation of the arts. But in this chapter 3 of Book 8, this is the passage I wanted to get to. He says that part of the cultivation which men think is proper to free men is to form the mind in leisure. And he says this involves music. But by music, he means the poetic. And here's a citation from Homer. Citing Homer, he says, Such are they who alone shall be called to the bountiful banquet. And with them they call the minstrel to pleasure all men with his music. And in another passage, Homer says, Odysseus is made to say that music is the best of pastimes when men are all merry. And they who feast in the hall lend their ears to the minstrel in silence, sitting in due order. I think what this is getting at, another translation says, at the banquet they call the bard. What this means is the bard or the minstrel sings the songs about the gods and heroes. I think what Homer is getting at, and Aristotle uses this passage, to say what is elevated and worthy of free men is to devote sufficient time to hear the stories about the gods and the heroes. See, to hear about what is most worthy, what is most fine. And this is what's worthy of the soul of a free man. So the impact of education upon politics in Aristotle's account is quite high. First of all, for the practical reason of the need for citizen virtue, that moderation, courage, a sense of justice require that each citizen be educated according to the principles of the regime. But even more to strain towards a higher virtue, that love of the noble for its own sake, which certainly comes about, as Aristotle says, through poetry. But poetry understood here by the Greeks, not as just a private reverie or lyric, but the noble epics, which give us a sense of the meaning or purpose of life, which allow us to participate in the greater drama and meaning of existence. Basically, I would say it is a question of the influence of religion upon the citizens so that they have a reason to live a reason to flourish, a reason to perpetuate the regime and understand the principles of things. Well, it's part of the modern notion of politics that education has very little to do with politics. We have lowered the goal of politics so that we see it's only facilitating the pursuit of self-interest. But again, I think our founders were not pure moderns when they listed life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness 
as one of the great goals of our political society, that the pursuit of happiness had content for our founders. They were not only influenced by Locke, and even Locke they saw as a Christian thinker rooted in Hooker and ultimately in deeper Christian sources. But I think they were also well aware of the importance of reading stories about the heroes and God. They read their Plutarch and lives of noble Greeks and Romans. George Washington and virtually every president since Washington has affirmed the importance of a religious outlook on life for the flourishing of our country. So I think it's not unusual to see that even though the major political purpose of the protection of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or life, liberty, and property, are the primary function of the state, that there is this need for education. And if it's not picked up by the state, it will be the function of intermediate groups. This is how Tocqueville saw the role of intermediate groups, especially churches and schools, to contribute to the vitality of modern liberal democracy, is that it's through these intermediate groups that the soul can find an elevation or tone that we can discover our reasons for living and to see that there's something more than acquisition. Maritain in Man in the State also develops this notion of civic education and a somewhat controversial phrase. Maritain talks about the democratic creed, the democratic charter, a democratic secular faith. Again, I think if properly understood, Maritain here has something sound in mind. He is not making democracy into a religion or saying that it is something that should take the full devotion and commitment as if it were an ideology. I think what he has in mind here is that modern liberal democracy does have a certain creed, a certain set of beliefs. He says it's the creed of freedom. There is a common faith. You see, he's taking this trying to make an end run around people like John Dewey, who formulate a common faith, which is the reduction of religion to secular purposes. That's not at all Maritain's intent here, but he thinks there's a grain of truth in the notion of a democratic common faith, that there is something here worth living for. Indeed, he and Yves Simone, as expatriates from France during World War II, would say there's something worth dying for in this democratic creed against the totalitarian threats to this belief in the dignity of man and the rights which protect the flourishing of man. But Maritain and Man in the State on page 111 of this book says the body politic has the right and duty to promote among its citizens mainly through education the human and temporal and essentially practical creed on which depend national communion and civil peace.
He goes on to say, though, that the deeper justification for this creed requires some kind of deeper religious education. And I think that's what's very refreshing in Maritain's account of man in the state, is to say, this starts on page 119, that education being the primary means to foster common secular faith in the democratic charter. But then he goes on to explain he doesn't have in mind some cheap propaganda or ideology. He says, first and foremost, it depends upon the family and the family sense of religious perspective. He further goes on to say that it requires a philosophical and religious tradition, which are at work in the consciousness of the nation and which have contributed historically to its formation. And he says it's a sheer illusion to think that the democratic charter could be efficiently taught if it were separated from the roots that give it consistency and vigor, that is, the historic roots both in Protestant Christianity and also in Catholicism, that we can meet the challenge of pluralism by allowing various approaches to teaching the creed, but rooted in the traditional heritage of the various peoples. Now, certainly he thinks Europe had a better solution when it allowed state support to various traditions to teach. But he said, even in the American context, there's a way in which this historic rooting of our philosophical or political creed, just to be historically accurate, would need to understand its roots in Judeo-Christian tenets and inspiration. I mean, just as an example, one could take the Declaration of Independence and note that there are at least four references to God. So even in a public place, how could we try to eliminate reference to God in religion to even understand our own founding document? But surely he's right to say that the full vital appropriation of this democratic creed, the respect for rights and human dignity, requires more than the foundation given by Hobbes and Locke. It requires more than just the teaching of self-interest, but it needs something like an Aristotelian and Thomistic account of the human person, the spiritual soul, the powers of the soul of intellect and will, of virtues and habits, that all of these are essential to the very flourishing of the democratic society itself. Simone's contribution, on the other hand, I would say, may have a more long-term significance. It's a very prophetic look in his last chapter. I know this is a complex chapter entitled Democracy and Technology, but it's well worth close reading and study. Because in it, he talks about happiness and the pursuit of happiness in the modern context of a technological society. And 
the challenges that are needed for what he calls the training of free men, finding ways to overcome the individualistic loneliness of modern life to discover community. He has some very profound statements here about the modern conditions of life and the challenges really to us who do seek the form of education rooted in Aristotle and Aquinas. Let me just go over a few of the challenges that he notes in this final chapter of his. The first thing that he says is living in a technological society. It is the case that our very environment has been changed. There are great dislocations. He just mentioned some things like our sense of time, the fast pace of life, things like the ratio between natural and artificial things in our environment, or the living and the non-living. And he thinks perhaps one of the greatest challenges is that a new idea of rationality, of scientific control, seeks to banish mystery. He has a very persuasive account here about how experts and many social scientists will become haters of freedom and how dangerous this is for a liberal democracy if their theoretical science denies the very existence of free will and the spiritual soul. This is on 277. He just says that part of technique, he has a definition of technique. It's on page 267. A technique is a rational discipline designed to assure the mastery of man over physical nature through the application of scientifically determined laws. So this idea of mastery of man over nature through scientifically determined laws. He says the problem here is there is a certain mystery or recalcitrance of the human being to techniques of experts. He says, this is back on 277, the mystery characteristic of human affairs becomes more and more bewildering and uncongenial. People can hardly tolerate an extremely high ratio of failure in economic and political processes when they are used to an almost uninterrupted success in the operation of their machines. Obviously, Simone did not have a computer with windows on it, but I think he's right here to say we do expect this uninterrupted success of our machines. The world of men the world in which freedom undergoes frequent defeats becomes irritatingly unintelligible. So at the end of this page, 278, he says, the rationalism born of technological pride hates human liberty, both on account of its excellence and on account of its wretchedness. I think those are very important words to think about our education today, that as we educate ourselves to become more expert in technology, as the social sciences develop with claims to control and master human nature, that the protection of liberty, that love of liberty upon which a democracy rests, will be 
further and further diminished and destroyed if there is not again a liberal education which is able to approach the human things in terms of the human. That we have to resist or at least take initiatives to see that technical education is not substituted for humanistic education. And that we see the need for keeping alive the sense of human mystery. I think that goes back to Aristotle when he said, at the banquet call the bard who will sing the songs of the gods and heroes. Again, there's much to learn from Simone in this last chapter, but I think one of the last things I will mention here, he does have a section called the pursuit of happiness and the lust for power. And again, I think in light of the Pope's concern over consumerism in the West, that this little section well deserves our attention. But the last point I want to get at is the section called the training of free men. It's not all dark and despairing in this chapter on Simone. He uses a good Aristotelian principle of the developing of virtue to show where the training of free men can arise certainly within the technological and business environment in which people live. That is, this is not just a humanistic reaction to business and technology, but he sees practically even within the world of work, there is a place where proper intellectual habits can be developed through what he calls the concern with holes. Holes, W-H-O-L-E-S. On 298, he says, no technical habit can be acquired without steady participation in the planning of action upon nature, and every planning is concerned with holes. So he thinks that through planning, even in the workplace, if we are able to look at the integrating center of our work, and that's what he says, the essence of humanism is the use of a reference to man as a principle of integration. That there are ways to bring to bear liberal education, indeed spirituality itself, into the workplace to preserve this mystery of man and appreciation for the whole and appreciation for human purposes, and so on. And I think this could also be well complemented by some of the Pope's writings on work, or to look at Gaudium et Spes and Lumen Gentium, which talk about the sanctification of everyday life, that things can be made meaningful and human, but it's up to our own education and prayer to be able to achieve this. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.